This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Jim Gardner, the former longtime owner of the Enterprise. He was raised in a large family in Gilderland. As a boy, he fished in the Black Creek and hunted pheasants and rabbits, squirrels and partridges along Cider Road. We never wasted it. If you shot it, you prepared it for the cook, he said. Gardner was in the class of 1955, the first to graduate from the new Gilderland High School. When he was in high school, he started working at the Enterprise as a printer's devil, carrying heavy frames of hot lead type to the grand printing press in the cellar. As he learned the art and craft of printing, he said he fell in love with the printed word. I've never gotten over that, he said. You once told me a story about ducks that you had. Do you remember this? The moral of the story was... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Melissa, yes, you bring that back. We learned early on never to name any of the animals you had. Don't give them names because um, we had ducks and we named Daisy and Donald. (laughs) And then came time uh, when Dad harvested the ducks <laughs> it yeah. became difficult to, to sit there knowing you were eating Daisy or Donald <laughs> yeah gosh that is <laughs> so, a good lesson to be learned really yeah, was once we learned that early on yes <laughs> yeah once you name an animal it becomes like a pet and therefore it's not something that you really would want to eat also right. um, another story I remember And sadly, I think I might have learned the story when I was writing the obituary for your uh, brother, Paul, that he was really an entrepreneur at a very young age. And you were right next to the golf course. And I think you told me, um, what did, tell me just, what did he do (laughs) that was entrepreneurial? Do you remember this story? Uh, Well, originally, uh, a, a friend of the, our next door neighbor uh, bought that property and he was building a house uh, and uh, he was in the foundation stage and sort of hired me as an overseer uh, to help finish the cellar that he had uh, some people come in to lay the, the, you know, the blocks and that uh, and we were backfilling it and grading, and uh, that was my first entrepreneurial enterprise, was to g- gather together some friends and uh, oversee the, the backfilling of his foundation and grading of the, the yard in that. Uh, and how did, how did that project go? Oh, it, it went beautifully. Um, but he didn't live there very long, and then he sold it to uh, the Pine Haven Golf Course uh, group. Um, And then, of course, the golf course emerged. Yeah, well, I thought I remembered, and maybe I misremembered, that your brother would take the golf balls that were kind of um, 
you know, got hit astray, and he'd collect them and resell them to people. Is that oh, true? Oh, gosh, yes. Yes, my yeah. younger brother, Paul. Um, yeah. He worked. He actually worked at the golf course. Uh, he he uh, since you know it was several years uh, uh, associated with the golf course. Uh, yeah, and it began picking up golf balls and then reselling them back to the players. Yeah, yeah. he was very yeah. entrepreneurial. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, also too, I think you and your brothers were hunters and fishers even as young kids. Uh, can you tell us a little about that? You know, just oh, in the woods around your house. Yeah, because you know back then uh, when we first moved to Gilderland. Uh, there was uh, uh, one house, uh, a very small house. Actually, it was just a cellar, um, and the neighbors were living in this in uh, the the uh, cellar part to start, and then mm-hmm. uh, then they built the house on top, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and. Uh, then shortly, another family moved in across the street, so there were three houses there, uh, and that was when Cyber Road, um, actually, in the wintertime, the, there was a, a little hill there just as you approached the golf course, and it was only a one-lane road, very uh, narrow opening there to get through, and the road during the winter time would close there for weeks at a time because uh, they couldn't get through. Uh, and there was no real need to get, because it just went into the pine bush. Uh, and in the winter, uh, there, there wasn't much activity in the pine bush back then. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then in later life, you used to show me these amazing pictures. Your brother became a big game hunter. It wasn't just, you know, like as kids where you would hunt smaller animals or maybe even deer. I know you've hunted deer and I know you've hunted turkey because I have on my wall over the mantelpiece a beautiful feather. What do you call the feather tail of a turkey that you mounted yourself? Um, it's beautiful. But tell us a little about Paul and some of his, he, he just had amazing animals that, that he ended up hunting. Uh, about my brother, uh, the, the hunter, the, yeah, world yeah. hunter, yes. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, my dad actually um, worked with us uh, with firearms and taught us right as early on as I could remember uh, him actually exposing us to firearms and tutoring us on the handling of firearms and how to do it safely and carefully. Um, And then I had an uncle that lived in Schenectady and what a wonderful person he was. Uh, As we got a little older, um, he would come out maybe twice a month uh, he would come to visit us regularly uh, but about twice a month he would bring uh, different guns uh, clay pigeons which are targets that you throw up in the air and then uh, you can shoot them with a shotgun and he actually taught us how to um, they call it wing shooting but um, how to hit flying targets in the air (laughs) 
Uh, mm. And I'm very uh, grateful to my uncle uh, for that. Uh, what a wonderful thing he did for for several years. Uh, and uh, we, my brothers and I, we had um, on both sides of Cyber Road that we could hunt. There wasn't another dwelling around. Uh, and we just loved to hunt squirrels and partridge, uh, pheasants, rabbits. Uh, there weren't any turkeys then. Uh, and I did not get into deer hunting until I got older. You know, and then I progressed into deer hunting. But my brother Paul, uh, younger brother Paul, uh, he was very, very successful as an entrepreneur. Uh, very successful. And uh, he wound up going to just about every conceivable spot in the world you could think of um, sport hunting uh, um, for different game animals uh, and he had uh, one of the most renowned um, museums of those animals um, in, in the in the United States, I, I saw a book he was listed in, uh, and showed some of that uh, what he had, and we went we went to see it several times. It was just amazing. <laughs> um, yes, but it runs. It just we just were born into it and gravitated to it and uh, enjoyed hunting very much and fishing. <laughs> Our yes. fishing started in the Black Creek at Osborne's Corners, and we caught eels and bullheads, and Mom had to cook whatever we caught. And yeah, we never wasted well, anything. <laughs> that's one of the things that I've really admired over the years, this idea you never wasted anything, because you would often give us these amazing gifts when you got a pheasant, say, but you have the <laughs> skill to pluck it and <laughs> do whatever has to be done so that it can actually be eaten. Um, and I don't know, do you do that or does Wanda do that? How, how, no, what? I, 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 that was my responsibility. If you if you shot it, you took care of it and prepared it for the table or to, for the cook. <laughs> so wow. they didn't have to do anything else except do the cooking. <laughs> Oh, okay. wow. That's a great skill. I think it's a lost art, too. I don't fish, think many people... Fish or game, them. either one. Yeah, you have to do yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'd also just like to talk about your journey into becoming a master printer. Um, I was going to spend a little more time on your childhood and teenagehood, but I'm looking at the clock. Maybe we should just talk a little about, I know country music was so important to you growing up. And I, I remember a, a story, although I don't remember the details, about you and a teenage friend heading down, and I can't remember, was it to see the Grand Old Opry? Or was it something where you headed south um, to witness country music in person. But if you could just talk a little about, you know, how you got into loving that music so much. Oh, uh, I had a very, a very dear friend uh, from a classmate in high school um, who is now deceased, but probably uh, the closest friend I've ever had. I uh, And his... 
his father uh, was involved with horses, and uh, that when that relationship between my my friend and his father, and I was exposed uh, to country music on WWVA Wheeling, West Virginia. <laughs> Uh, on, especially on rainy nights, you could pick it up and, and get country music because it wasn't readily available uh, until uh, uh, Dave Denny came along and uh, was on the radio, and he started playing, uh, had a show with uh, country music, and then opened a square dance barn up in Latham where we used to go square dancing, um, and. Uh, that was my. That's how I, I I came into hearing country music and and loved it, um, and then. So was was this friend Chuck Pergle? Is that the friend that you're talking about? Yes, Chuck Pergle. Yeah. Yes. And he, you two were in the first class to graduate from the new. Gilderland High School, is that right? Right, yes. And that I was think 19, he, 1955. We were the first graduating class from uh, Gilderland, I, the new Gilderland High School. Yeah, class. and I think I remember that Chuck Pergel was the one that was responsible for coming up with the idea of the Flying Dutchman, which of course has become the long-standing... Um, image associated with the school. Is that right? Did he come up with that? Um, it, it was between he and an, another classmate. Uh, they, they seemed to come up with it um, sort of together. Um, okay. Uh, uh, Chuck Pergle and Frank Elliott. Yeah. Wow. Because that's it, it, that's an enduring legacy. I mean, they still have that on their letterhead and all their sports <laughs> teams. And, you know, that's that was at the beginning, coming up with what what became the mascot going forward. That's really remarkable. <laughs> yes, but what I was yes. thinking of was this story that you had, where maybe it was you and Chuck Pergel that you drove south. Did you drive to Nashville? Did you? <laughs> well, you, yeah, uh, we we were always, as I mentioned, we were always listening to WWVA. Uh, from Wheeling, West Virginia, and uh, one afternoon we got talking in school on a it was on a Friday, um, and we decided on the spur of the moment we were going to go to the WWVA Jamboree party on Saturday night in Wheeling, West Virginia. So we left. Uh, I got home from school and told my mom, Mom, I won't see you until probably Sunday or Monday. Uh, Chuck and I are going to Wheeling. <laughs> and we left. <laughs> we left immediately after school. And what an adventure. Yes, we drove, drove through the night and uh, the, the next day down to Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, for the WWVA Jamboree party on Saturday night. And it was just an amazing, one of the things I, I never have forgotten in my life, the experience, because that was the first time I had ever really gotten out traveling at all, uh, outside of making it to Massachusetts uh, on, on the coast to see my aunt and uncle when I was really small. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
a road trip, a, an iconic road trip with your best buddy. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it was an infamous trip. Yeah. 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 So I I did want to talk to you about the path you took to become such a printer, a master printer. Just if you could describe how it is, you know, you first, I think you were still in high school when you started working uh, uh, at well, the Enterprise. Yeah, yeah, I think it was in 1954. You'll have to forgive me because things, I don't remember things uh, quite as sharply as I did. Uh, but I'm pretty certain it was 1954. I had to be. Um, and um, there were just any number of uh, uh, classmates that I knew would work at, were working at the enterprise. They always had the need, had a need for extra help. It seemed uh, somebody would be here for a few weeks, and then we go on another month, or two, and then be gone. And, and it turned out uh, they were in need of somebody to help on Thursdays to bag the uh, the newspapers. Uh, uh, you, you, they had rolled newspapers, and then you'd have to stamp them and tie them up, bundle them, and uh, and then also uh, the pages back then were it was all done on hot type, uh, set on linotype uh, line casting machines or, or inner type hot lead line casting machines, and uh, these forms were made up in big metal chases. Um, and and they would be tightened up with special coins to make the, the the forms really tight, and then you would have to pick up these big newspaper-sized uh, lead pages in the metal frame and carry them downstairs and put them on the press downstairs in the building here. And the press is still here because uh, once we shut it down, I never have had the heart to take it apart or do anything. It's preserved downstairs in the basement. But uh, anyway, the, the special crews of that's how I began. I was uh, helping bag newspapers, carry newspapers from the press up to the people that were stamping them and wrapping them and bagging them and, and then carry the forms to the press and then from the press back upstairs because after everything was done, uh, you'd take all those pages apart, remelt the lead and start over for next week. Um, and just and to give people a picture that they might not have an idea, because I used to take Boy Scouts visiting the paper down these cellar steps, and it's yes. kind of like another world down there. This press yeah. is huge. Like you yeah, think the New that, York, you people think the New York Times is a broadsheet. This Altamont Enterprise broadsheet. It's a tabloid now, which is small, but it used to be broader than the New York Times. I mean, it was a wide sheet of paper, <laughs> yeah. and yes. yeah. yeah, you and you must have press, been. Go ahead. When that press, what? Oh, when that press was running, you could stand out in the middle of Maple Avenue and you could hear it. <laughs> there was I no no it. concealing it. Everybody knew when it was press time. <laughs> oh. 
wow. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It's huge. And um, you must have been quite a muscular young man because <laughs> those stairs what? are hard to navigate even when your hands are empty. You know, they're, you know, yeah, old-fashioned seller I stairs. I for uh, three, three, four, two, three, four years, something like that. Uh, and then yeah. we get a new crew came along and, and I graduated yeah. from that job. <laughs> Uh, but that's when I fell in love with the printed word, and it became apparent to me how important the printed word really was. Uh, and I have never gotten over that. Um, it, it's just one of the most important things there is in, in life is the printed word, and uh, I still believe that uh, it's available, and I. I just was intrigued with being an actual part of creating printed, printed material. Um, yeah, and it stuck with me my entire life, and it's still just as important today as it was back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but most people have no idea the work that goes in to printing, and I know you have almost, you have all the modern offset equipment there, and you do that with great skill as well, but you still have, which hardly anybody has. My sister works in a museum in, in Vermont showing people this this method that you use just as if it's nothing. I, I mean, that you do it so easily and so well. If you could just kind of explain um you know, some of that. If you walk in the old Enterprise building, you can see these drawers of type carved out of wood, as well as metal. And Jim will sit at this machine. It sounds like rain on a hot tin roof. (laughs) And he can make (laughs) letters and put them into, you know, put them into a form where they can be printed. And he knows how to read upside down and backwards just the way most people read forward because he's so used to seeing type that way. But if you could yeah. just maybe walk us through the process of of just one of the one of the old school methods and then we'll walk through some of the modern methods that you use now as well. But just kind of to let listeners know what's involved in the old days when you started there um just uh, describe of, 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 when I, as i graduated along from one phase to another um howard Oxbury and shorty Vroman were the linotype operators uh, and they basically set all the text for the newspaper um and jim pino and um uh, well, they, the, the fellow that lived down in Gilderland, and uh, I can't remember his first name, but his nickname was it was Buster Brown, um, <laughs> and Buster and Jim Pino would be the guys uh, that were assembling the ads, putting ads together. Um, the d- display ads for the newspaper, uh, as well as um, they called it job printing back then. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, they did during the week odd printing jobs. Uh, and then as the ads for the newspaper came in, they would work on creating the ads and have those ready for the next publication. Uh, and then I, I got graduated into that because Buster retired 
um, and they needed somebody, and, and I just sort of filled that gap. And it was sort of, it, it evolved into a unique situation because uh, back then I, I did, worked, uh, I think it was um, two days for the Enterprise, and then I had, uh, I met a fellow who helped, actually came over on Wednesday, on Wednesday nights to help finish up putting the ads together uh, to, to go for Thursday's publication. Um, a fellow by the name of Bill Beebe who ran his own little print shop in Rotterdam. Um, and I met Bill, and he was a wonderful, wonderful man, a wonderful person. And the first thing you know, I was working three days a week for uh, the BB Press in, in Rotterdam, and uh, two days and a night <laughs> at the Enterprise. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and then I become quite a, an accomplished linotype operator because uh, the the. the, the BB Press I worked in in Rotterdam, he, he had printing jobs that needed a lot of composition. And then I worked out a, a deal with the folks at the Enterprise to use the linotype on weekends. Uh, and the nights they weren't using it. And so I would work weekends and nights when when the, these jobs came along and, and I would typeset them on the, on the linotype uh, for the, the, the printer in Rotterdam. Um, and then all of this just sort of culminated when age catches up and, uh, I became a, a partner. I bought into the newspaper and then, uh, uh, as Jim Pino retired, I, I bought, or uh, Shorty Broman retired first. Uh, and, and I bought, purchased his share of the business, and then Jim Pino retired, and I purchased his part of the business, uh, and then Howard Oxbury passed on, uh, and I inherited half of his share, uh, and then had to buy uh, out the uh, the other half of that share from uh, another fellow that was involved in the newspaper. Um, and first thing you know, I was the sole owner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You were the sole owner when I came to the Enterprise and for right. all the years <laughs> after. And that's a heavy load to and carry. I, yes. But you had thank, by your and side. Thank, uh, and thank goodness for Melissa Hale Spencer. She arrived <laughs> well. and, and, and accomplished what I always had in the back of my mind is what I envisioned the Enterprise actually uh, the, the reaching the pinnacle, I thought. <laughs> um, you know, we were a well-read newspaper, but um, it didn't have the real uh, town news, uh, political news, uh, and uh, other community news that uh, Melissa Hale Spencer uh, brought to the fore and made it really come to completion. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, it was my great privilege, Jim. But we cannot forget your important partner by your side all these years. Let's just talk a little about Wanda, your wife, because I was always amazed in the years at the Enterprise just to see a husband and wife who complimented each other so well. And to this day, it's now the Enterprise Print and Photo Shop. And there is Wanda still at her front desk. (laughs) Well, Jim (laughs) is, you know, doing the printing in the back. And just could you just tell us a little about um, Wanda Sturgis um, and how she came into your life and became not just you know, a partner in marriage and as a mother, but also in in your business. Yeah. Uh, the greatest thing that ever happened to me, uh, uh, meeting my wife, Wanda, yes. Uh, it actually came about. Um, my brother... Uh, was had uh, met of a fame mother, um, and they were getting married, and uh, the wedding party was assembled, and my wife was fame mother's uh, 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 maid of honor, and I was the best man for my brother. And that's how I met my wife. <laughs> and it just seemed like it was amazing. It was in, instantaneous. I, I, I met this woman and I said, wow. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it just took off. Um, and a year later, we were married. 